Hello and welcome to the Elmtown Podcast. I'm Kevin Yank, your host. And before we get going, I just want to thank ElmConf 2018. They are our bandwidth and hosting sponsors for this week. ElmConf 2018 is running in St. Louis, Missouri on September 26th. Tickets are $125. That is a steal. You can find out all about the conference at ElmConf. That's elm-conf.us. The speaker list is up on the web, and I am intensely jealous of anyone who gets to go to that conference. Unfortunately, I'm way down here in Melbourne, Australia, so what's your excuse? Get over to elmconf.us and sign up now. I'm joined today by Xavier Ho. Hi, Xavier. Hello, Kevin. This is my first episode as the regular host of the Elmtown podcast, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to get a local in. Murphy did a great job, but he didn't have a lot of on-site interviews in Melbourne, Australia. I thought that was something unique I could bring to the show. That is awesome. And we have a recording room as well, yeah, which well, helps. I should mention Coltramp. They are my employer and they are sponsoring my time right now. So thank you, Coltramp, for letting us do this in their, in their lovely recording booth. Xavier, why don't you tell the people who you are? Right. Um, so I'm a software engineer. I work for a company called Data61. And that is under the CSIRO, which is Australia's scientific and industrial research organization. So we look at uh, things from agriculture to air quality, water quality, land, things like that. And it's trying to do science for public good. Mm. And Data61 is a commercial arm and um, technology and science research arm of CSIRO focused mostly on data and technology. So we have teams working in robotics. We have teams working in privacy. In myself, I'm in the front-end engineering team embedded, surprisingly, in uh, a UX team. Yeah, right. And yeah. apparently you're using Elm there at Data61? I was on a project about four months ago when the team decided that Elm was something they wanted to try. And the team was primarily Haskell uh, people. So they were already familiar with functional programming. They were comfortable um, using all kinds of transformations and functions and things like that. Yeah. And so they're like, yeah, do you want to learn functional programming and use Elm? I'm like, sure, that sounds like a cool thing to do in your first project, new job, right? This, why not? Take new technologies. Yeah. And so we uh, pushed out finally a private beta for an app. Uh, so that was published three weeks ago now. It is looking at grains, so agriculture, um, lo looking at yield prediction and soil moisture for farmers. Right. So they just have to come to us, sign up, tell us about what they want to grow and where they're growing. And we use the weather simulations um, and modeling to tell them what they might get for the next year if they plant a particular crop. And um, from the last I've heard, um, they were overwhelmed, actually, for the private beta signups. It's um, one of those things that you don't expect, but it's good to hear things you make actually take off. So what part of a product like that is, is Elm? It is the whole front end. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so the Haskell team who wanted to try Elm um, kind of did a bit of a play around, and then they build a small component library, not something comprehensive, but yeah. something that they can see that it could work. Yeah. So they build buttons, they build forms, they build um, a couple of fields that can display different things. And they, all they, they also did a mock-up design for like a circular dial, um, bunch of horizontal bars to show soil moisture and time, things like that. All the dashboard widgets. Everything is there, yeah. right? Actually, they built the entire mobile app using um, Elm. And that, you know, compiles into HTML, JavaScript, and we load our own CSS. And that's just running on the mobile. You mentioned agriculture, so I'm, I'm immediately thinking maps with colors on them. Am I thinking of the right thing? You were thinking of the right thing, but we decided because it was an MVP, yeah. we actually just used Google Maps yeah, right. to, to take care of the complicated logic out of maps. 
but we did do the dashboardy stuff. And I wanted to start simple, being someone who's very new to Elm. Um, I'm pretty familiar with SVG, I would say, the scalable vector graphics. Yep. And I know I can draw arcs, I can draw ellipses and lines and rectangles quite easily. But to learn things, I really went back to the basics, right? How do I draw a circular dial with a number in the middle? Without digging too much into the design side of things, I wanted to just say, how can I draw a circle? Mm -hmm. How can I draw just part of a circle, which is an arc? Mm -hmm. Now, how can I put a number in the middle of the circle? And, and where, where do they align? What happens if the number goes over 100? So that took a while to get used to, but that was a really good way to learn how I might um, define my data sets and then put that onto the web page. Mm. A visualization that you've written from scratch yourself is something that you can do anything you want with. I find that very true as yeah. well. Sometimes you might want to pick a couple of things from JavaScript or just design everything um, and you kind of have to make the trade-off to say, I'm doing a production app and I only have, say, two, three months to to push out this whole beta thing. Yep. So which libraries can I uh, be confident about building in Elm and everything will be like statically checked and I know it's going to be right. I, I can confidently iterate on that and I have full control of the features that's going to come in. Whereas something like Geospatial, that's a lot of complicated things. So we went with Google Maps instead. Yeah, right. So I didn't look too deeply whether um, Elm had a maps library. That's only because when I joined a team, uh, the prototype they had built already had Google Maps. Yeah. So I thought, okay, well, I can work with this. Yeah. Um, early on, we did bump into a very interesting issue because Elm tries to be very smart about reusing the DOM elements uh -huh. in a browser. So imagine you're calling the Google Maps function the initial map function, which just puts a map there at the location in the zoom of your choice, right? Yeah. And then you want to switch to the next page because now your farmers are really interested to find out the dashboardy stuff. Elmo go, oh, you were there at the Google Maps page, and now you're on a dashboard page, but you have, say, two divs and one div over here. I can reuse that, right? <laughs> so what happens is that they haven't removed the div which you um, appended the Google Maps in JavaScript language Elm doesn't know about. Yes. And now you're stuck with uh, nothing but Google Maps, which is blocking all your dashboard stuff. Yeah. Right. So I learned this thing um, through a colleague who was looking at it later. There's a library on the core library called the HTML.keyed. Yeah which let you kind of define custom labels on the um, components yeah. and say, yeah, this is actually the Maps component. Don't reuse it. And after that, it's, it's all fine. I'm convinced that the day you learn about HTML keyed, you have a really bad day and then a really good day. <laughs> like you, you have this moment of despair and then someone goes, oh, no, you just use HTML keyed. And you're like, wow, how did I not know that was a thing? In a way, because... Um, Browser DOM elements, they yeah. don't really have types, right? So as far as Elm is concerned, they're just div tags or yep. they're just, I don't know, image, header. So Elm would think it's the same type, and that's why it checks out. Yep. And that extra hinting information really helps Elm decide what to reuse and what not to reuse. It's kind of impressive that you can get as far as you can without having to deal with something you as low level You almost never have that? to. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. only usually JavaScript yep. when you have to use something that has side effects that comes in at random times, <laughs> you know. And if you didn't know this before, well, now you do, and yeah. we just have saved you two weeks of work trying to work out how to solve this. There's one more thing. Yes. Actually, your Elm has logic to run, right? Like, initialize the map. Yeah. So how do you know that the DOM tag is there yeah. Yeah. before your Elm goes in, oh, call this port, and it's going to be fine. Yep. So we, then we found that uh, request animation frame, which is one of the things you can use, that will be called at the painting um, stage mm -hmm. of the browser rendering. Mm. The painting is always after the layout and always after the DOM generation. So if you call the Elm port to initialize Google Maps, 
and they the port, the first thing the JavaScript you do is request animation frame with a async function in yeah. there, then you are guaranteed that whatever this is going to do is going to be at the very minimum after the DOM generation. After Elm has finished the same update. Yes. Yeah, right. So they generated the port command, right. Yeah. So that's what we learned. Yeah. <laughs> I actually became aware of you and your work when I went to an event here in Melbourne called What Do You Know? This is a, um, uh, a night in, of short talks that the Web Directions Conference. Yeah, back on. in May. Yeah. May this year. You gave a talk about generative art, and you it was this five-minute rapid-fire tour of this thing that I had never heard of before, and I walked out with my mind blown. Do you want to tell us what generative art is, first of all? Yeah. So generative art is actually a very niche um, thing that, artists who are technical started to do back in the 70s. Mm. It kind of started up in Europe and then got picked up in the States and now it's popular in Japan or pretty much all over the world and obviously in Australia as well. And the idea for generative art is that you want to make something that's nice or visually pleasing, so art, maybe to tell a message, but you want to be generative as in you want to programmatically generate the picture that you might normally uh, be thinking about. So when we think of generative art, uh, or at least when I think of generative art, I like to think of I'm building a machine, and I say, I'm going to crank this lever, and I wonder what happens here. And you just keep cranking until something in interesting comes out. And if you think it's getting a little bit boring, you might switch gear. Mm -hmm. So you have a smaller lever now, or mm -hmm. you might pull a different lever. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like you would think something that was just a, you know two or three circles linked together or some kind of mechanical things linked together. But the moment you start to putting in force, you see a picture that comes out of it, which um, people might not normally be thinking about. So it's really hard to describe, I guess, over a podcast. Yes. But I'm happy to... <laughs> we have um, chosen the wrong medium <laughs> for Elmtown this week. <laughs> but I'm more than happy to share um, a bunch of links that an artist that inspired me uh, into kind of dipping into... Generative art. If your podcatcher has the ability to browse the show notes and tap some links as you listen, this is the show to do that. We're going to fill this this set of show notes with links to all the stuff we're going to talk about. Sounds good. Um, so you showed a few examples of generative art on stage in at that event. Were those written in L? No, they were not. They were not. Okay, that I remember it correctly. But then the next thing I heard was that you were speaking at Yao Lambda Jam, another event. Somehow I got word that this was going to be a talk about generative art in Elm, and I got very excited. And uh, I'm happy to say the recording of that talk is now available. Yeah, on YouTube. Yeah, but I remember talking to you in like the weeks leading up to you giving the talk, and you were kind of like, ah, I don't know how it's going. <laughs> so that's the fun thing actually about generative art is that you, you never really expect what you get out of it. Yeah. So you might say today, I'm going to build something out of circles and lines, which sounds really simple, but then how do you put something together that's just circles and lines. Well, what, what do you even mean by that? Yes. Well, what if I put a circle next to a circle next to a line? What, what does that come to mind? Or what if I put two circles together like a Venn diagram and then draw a line somewhere between the two circles? Yeah. What does that look like? And so if you kind of start to think about compositions of these pictures or shapes in, you know, it could be a grid, it could be intersections between lines, and it might just be random p positions, right? They give you a different picture. So that's why I never really expect, because sometimes, uh, well, actually, 9 out of 10, the stuff that I get out of generative art is just like, it's not 
something that I would sell. I wouldn't yeah, yeah. expect to see this in an art museum. Not like, capital A art. It is not. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it takes uh, a bit of experimentation, actually a lot of experimentation, to to get a picture that looks interesting and kind of piques people's interest and curiosity. So as part of the talk, I thought I might build a simple uh, example library, or at least a gallery, I should say, that people can kind of see what generative art, or at least a few things you can do with. Right? I'm looking at it on my screen right now, and what I'm seeing here is it, it looks like a curtain that is made out of horizontal lines that get squigglier and squigglier as you go down the screen. Uh, so that at the top, the, the curtain fabric feels really flat, but by the bottom, it's gotten quite sort of wavy. And if I refresh the page or if I just click the, the example title, I get a completely different curtain. Yeah, so each time you um, go back to the sub-page in this case, it reruns the whole page. And because I'm not seeding my random generations, um, it's going to be a random result every time, which is really interesting. You can kind of imagine like in a stop motion picture, the curtains moving along. And so every 12th of a second, you get a different picture. I don't know if this is not far from capital A art, I'm going to say. <laughs> it's really, it's a, it's a pleasing image. Is that what you're going for? Like just you personally when you're, you're, you're investing your time in experimenting to create generative art. Is that what you're going for, is a pleasing image? Um, I think every artist has their own little click that they like. Yeah. For me, I like something that has an order, but it's also a bit chaotic when you look closer. So, you know, you might look at something and go, oh, yeah, that looks like a curtain, or this looks like a checkerboard. But when you look closer, you realize the checkerboard is made out of random squiggles. Yep. You're like, what's going on here? Yep. And so that kind of levels of discovery is something I quite enjoy. It's something have a different depth at different distances. Mm. Which came first, the elm or the generative art? Definitely, I would say Elm came later because I'm so new to functional programming and I was using Elm um, at work and I thought, I really like this language. I want to do something else with it. Right? I want to make a side project. Then uh, we heard about Lambda Jam, but I thought I want to go to a conference and learn more about functional programming in general because I wanted to just dig into it. I'm really new. So I would say a lot of the uh, generative art stuff is me trying to learn uh, the functional aspects and trying to see what I can get out of it. So an example uh, might be like, I learned a lot about random generators in Elm yes. by doing this project. I also learned a lot about maps uh, in this project, mapping over different data types. Yep. Um, and that's something that I might have not done and learned if I just did it by day work and day work only. Coincidentally, the last, like two episodes ago on the Elm Town, we, we had Chandrika Achar on uh, to talk with Murphy about randomness. And they went into a deep dive of the, the random APIs and all that sort of stuff. So I'll link to that in the show notes. If you want the details of, of, of those APIs, how you do randomness in Elm, it's all there. But I, I think that is especially relevant to this stuff because so many of these, these generative art pieces are seeded or, or, or formed from randomness. Yeah. If you took the randomness out of and most of these, you wouldn't have much art left. Well, um, it would. It just would be very orderly. Yes, right. You'd have right? to pick a number. Yeah, you'll have to say, give me 12. And yeah. you go, what, what, what is 12? Well, this is curtain number 12. <laughs> Enjoy. That's right. <laughs> it will never change, which could be a good thing in some other cases. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that really inspired me in doing all this work is um, a, a guy whose title is Inconvergent. That's like his internet handle. He does, Inconvergent. He does a bunch of generative art stuff. So he came up with this technique called shepherding random numbers, which is something I, I quite like. And I, I gave that talk in What Do You Know? 
just about shepherding random numbers. Yes. And it is the idea of how can we make order out of something that is purely random. If you can give the random uh, domains a certain boundary, and then you can use a function that applies to this boundary that will, all, that will always be satisfied in some constraint, you will start to see a pattern come out of it. So think of things like Fibonacci sequences. Yes. Think of things like um, squ squares of squares. There is a sequence once you apply a function to itself over and over again. Yep. So the idea here is not to say that the, the data is too random, but let's apply functions over and over again uh, that would eventually produce some kind of order. So uh, shepherding random numbers is the plus function. The idea is that if you take a random function that generates between negative 0.5 and positive 0.5 in floating points, yep. and you just add each number that you get out of it into each other accumulatively, yep. and you keep a running sum. So you now you have a list from the beginning all the way to the running sum of every single random number you have ever seen before. Now, when you're adding something that's between negative and positive, chances are it's going to average to zero. Yeah, right. So it's it will sometimes go out of bound because you might get five huge positive numbers in a row, so now you're at four. Yeah. But sometimes you might come back, yes. right? So you have this in interesting crawling going on that will somehow always fall back to zero. Yes. And so the, the basic order here now is that I've, I've got something that is quite wavy, but it seems to stay on, shall we say, a horizontal line, mm -hmm. if you can imagine zero being horizontal. Yeah. Now, you can do a lot with this because you've got a random noise because it's crawling in and out. So you, you can now apply the random noise into something like a, a diagonal line, which might make the line go squiggly up and down. Yeah. You might decide to apply um, a curve and then add into this random noise. So now your curve is squiggly. And the interesting thing about this is now, now you have the control of what you want a general big shape to be like. Yes. It can be any shape. Yes. And it will still look like that any shape. But when you look closer, you've got a bit of wiggle. You've got a, a bit of noise, right? So what you can do, uh, for example, the curtain uh, things that you have open here, um, is that for every single uh, line below the first one, I'm also adding the line before it. Right. So each time, because uh, if there's a dimp uh, going down or going up, it's going to get added to the next one. And then it's going to wiggle a little bit more. But because I'm adding to the previous one before, it's going to amplify yes. that effect, mm -hmm. which is now you get the drape over time. Mm -hmm. And so it's literally just, yeah, two addition functions that accumulates over horizontally and then accumulates for every list vertically. Mm. Inspired by your talk, I went and had a play with uh, an, uh, an experimental library for doing canvas graphics in Elm. Mm. And uh, this is one of those libraries that's got its own native module, and so it's breaking some of the rules of Elm, but works just fine on my machine. <laughs> and uh, so I had a go at reproducing some of these generative art examples that I'd seen online done in JavaScript. And your term of shepherding random numbers did very quickly feel like what my job became as a developer, is figuring out how to get the randomness that I needed into the right part of my pure functional program. And having looked at your examples and what I wrote, I think there are two approaches where um, what I was trying to do is carry the seed around everywhere I went. And every time I used it to generate a new random number, I would get an updated seed that I'd have to pass back up the code path so that it was available for the next thing that needed a random number. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was shepherding a random seed around. Mm. Whereas what I see in your examples is you've kind of done this 
thought exercise at the start of the process of what are all the random numbers I'm going to need? What data structure? And this, this mirrors the experience, like this is the best practice of writing ELM programs, is think of your data structure first, model your problem in data, in your case, model your art in random numbers, and then just render it. That's right. And so I break my process into three different things. I've got a data, I've got what I call transformations, and I've got what I call drawing. So I split that very clearly because Elm is a one-way street into the browser land. I can't just draw a line and then say, oh, it's on a browser now. I'm going to just draw a different line and hope that the two will stick and look next to each other in some in interesting way. Yeah. Well, Elm doesn't do that. Elm will just replace the first one with the second line. Yeah. So you have to keep track programmatically in the data, shall we say, what you're going to draw. So yes, you can keep the seed around, and that's something I'm still playing with. But I found that if I can define down to the minimal amount of data that I need, and adding a bit of rhythm, and then define the transformations that I need, now the drawing function just have to go in and take care of everything. So in this case, um, say for the curtain e example, all I need is um, two arrays or multiple arrays of lines, and then I just manipulate around and I draw. Right, so I figured out the minimum amount of data that I needed was a 2D array. So I generate that. Um, whereas I think I've seen examples online where people use the seeding, um, which is built into the random library as well. You can generate a random integer or float. It returns that random number and the seed, yeah. which you carry to the next um, loop, I guess, yes. in the update cycle. That's what I tried to do, and I have to hmm. say it was hard. Yeah. Like your architecture, it feels more sane to me. It's also a bit limiting because once you've done uh, the generation, you can't actually go back and change it because you, you've defined your model, which is the data and the random stuff, which you're going to transform and, and draw. Um, I think the seeding one is more powerful. It gives you the flexibility to do whatever you want in, in the next frame. When I think of something that is generative, I think of something that is iterative and procedural. So what I mean by that is you can do things one step at a time. So if you were to draw a grid of circles where you start from the top left and you iterate through the grid until the grid is filled with circles, that's pretty natural to think of it. Yeah. Whereas in a functional land, you need to define all the coordinates for this grid, or yeah. at least the function that will return you all the coordinates for this grid. Yes. And then you say, well, given this function, I'm going to apply a circle drawing to it. And now you're done, right? You don't have to do the iterative part. You just say, here's my function. Go yeah. for it. Yeah. And when you're experimenting, it's very trial and error. Mm. And trial and error, guess what? It's an iterative process. <laughs> Functional programming doesn't play with iterative as well as a multi-language can do. Yes. But a good thing in the, about that is by the time you are done with your iterations, you have a very good structure. So it's a trade-off, but from a happiness point of view, it's a lot happier because... I don't. I have less bugs. Um, am I constrained by the creativity in terms of what I can do? I would say that once I'm more familiar with the tools that I have um, available to me, um, I can do a lot more things. So one of the talks uh, recently that happened in Melbourne uh, at a conference called LevelsConf, uh, Daisy gave another talk on what she calls creative coding, which is the umbrella term, I suppose. Okay. That covers generative art, but it also can cover uh, live coding music. It could cover um, interesting and weird robots that you're making. Yeah. So um, she kind of gave a bunch of examples that she really liked. So I would recommend that talk. As well as, I think, at uh, JSConf AU last year, Tim Holman gave a really good talk. Like a, He kind of speed sped through everything on, yes. on the different techniques that you can do with generative art. Yeah. So I would also recommend his talk as well. 
uh, Inconvergent gave at least two talks on shepherding numbers, but the best link that I can give you is his article. He has an online ebook that's uh, available for free with visual e examples of uh, what you can do with those numbers. And then there is also uh, Andrew Sorensen, who I think used to be a professor or an associate professor at ANU. He may have moved on. He did a bunch of procedural live music generation in a closure-like language, mm. which is very interesting. And uh, with closure, you can uh, select a function and you say, uh, run this. And sometimes you might redefine functions. And the idea is that you're, you're introducing change by redefining a function using the same identifier. So now the beats might change, or you might have a different uh, music tone and things like that. And you have, like, a, you know, your laptop is connected to a speaker. You're playing music that's being generated by this machine, and it's fascinating seeing this person programming music on stage, right? I, I've seen it done. And you know what? We were saying before that we'd chosen the wrong medium for the podcast today. <laughs> I think if we get some uh, some some live-coded music on the podcast, that could work really that well. That would be pretty awesome. Uh, yes. No promises, listeners, but uh, fingers <laughs> crossed. So if the, if the difficulty uh, curve of um, shepherding random numbers to create generative art on stage at, at Lambda Jam as a new functional programmer wasn't high enough, I noticed you also brought a piece of hardware along with you to the talk. Yes, I bought the Axis Raw Pen Plotter. What are they actually used for? I assume they aren't, weren't invented for drawing curtains. That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> so I was looking quickly before coming in today to look at the history of Pen Plotter, and they've been around since the 60s and yeah. 70s. And they got really advanced, right? You imagine a pen holder that's on a rail or two rails. So now you have the y-axis, but the pen holder can move left and right, so you have the x-axis. And you can just move the pen up and down. So you have a basic pen plotter that just uses a pen and draws whatever coordinates you want. But back in the 70s, um, the Hewlett-Packard was like a huge manufacturer for computing and machinery, and they also made pen plotters that will let you have this um, rotating style of pens, and you can say, I want to get blue now. Yeah. So you're putting like a blue marker and a yellow marker and a red marker and a green marker, and you have four different colors. Even more expensive than inkjet cartridges, those pens were, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, th I imagine they're just normal pens. Yeah. So in my example, I just used the Sharpie oh, five right. points. Oh, so you can use the your, your Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like a dollar fifty. Okay, now I'm on board. That's right. The yeah. pen plotter is the expensive stuff. Yeah. I think back in the day, because they're a room size, right? Because you, you you plot a basic minimum A three, and it can go bigger. So they're not something a family would just randomly buy and keep it at home because yep. you can't even do word processing with it. It's <laughs> purely an output product. But now um, we've shrunk it so much. If you build it yourself, you can probably build it for around 100 to 150 from all the components you can get. The most expensive really would just be getting a metal, a piece of metal cut to size with, with, with rails so that you can put in step motors and things like that. Mm. And the step motors themselves will also be a, the expense there. But if you buy it commercially off the shelf, the cheapest I've seen is 250. Uh, for Axis Roll, I think they price it at about 400 USD. Yeah, to right. 475, yeah. Okay, so it's it's not day one generative art gear, but it's maybe maybe day seven once you've done, gone down the rabbit hole a bit. The way I think of it is, am I willing to sacrifice a PS4 for a pen plotter? <laughs> That's a good way to think of it. <laughs> it's about that price. Yeah, right. Okay, you know you're serious when. So did you, did you pick up that gear especially for that talk? Or? I did. Yeah? Actually, I did. So I 
wanted to jump in really hard because I wanted to go to Lambda Jam. And what else uh, to go to a conference if you can bring something into the conference? And I thought, I might submit something, but I'm a new functional programmer. I started using Elm back in March. Lambda Jam isn't like July or June? Yeah. June, wasn't it? Yeah. So I was like, this is three months in. What, what do I have to offer, right? So I thought, well, my background is data visualization. I've done about a bunch of generative art stuff that I really like doing. So how about I set myself a challenge to do it in Elm? So I wasn't really thinking about it seriously until I gave a talk at What Do You Know? And that was like a five-minute lightning talk. And mm -hmm. I got pretty good feedback. And I thought, okay, this is actually something people would like to see on stage. So I might um, put this into Lambda Jam. So on that very same week, I wrote up my talk um, abstract in two paragraphs, yep. sent it through the conference uh, system and just left it, right? And I thought, well... I could do that too, but I wanted to make it something a bit more exciting. And I've been following people with pen plotters. So I thought, okay, maybe it's time, right? Like, even if I didn't get in, at least I have a pen plotter now. Yep. So I ordered it quite early because I thought, well, this is already May. The conference is in June. So if the pen plotter arrives in time, I can at least play with it, do some debugging, and, and go to the conference. Luckily, it arrived in like five days, which was amazing how fast things went. Um, so I had all the time about three weeks to kind of write a simple interface, debug with it, and then send the uh, SVGs that I have generated into the pen plotter, which brought me to another interesting point. Um, Elm doesn't give you access to the DOM element. Mm. Um, and also there's no functions that is in the official or unofficial um, packages that let you translate from HTML tag to just a string. There used to be one. Then they said... Um, this is not how we imagine it could be used, and no one should ever use this, so yeah. they took it off. Okay. It's still on GitHub, yeah. but I can see that was back in Elm 16 or 17, so it's probably not compatible with, with Elm 18. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I need to get the generative stuff, right, into a string, preferably SVG, because I found with at least the pen plot that I use, they have a Python driver that understands SVG. Right. So if I can give it SVG, I can feed the pen plotter to do things. Um, I also looked into, by the way, um, a, writing a driver for the pen plotter. Yeah. And it turns out that they're using serial, like USB. Wow. And so they have like eight comments. They have the, the pen motor up, pen motor down, moving the X, moving the Y, and a bunch of other things. And you have to give it a power rating to, to move a motor at a particular speed. Whoa. So it's super low, low level. level. yeah. Yeah, and I've seen drivers that people have wrote, uh, written that's third party. You would get a very jagged line for a diagonal line, and the curves are just not curves anymore. Wow. Whereas I looked into the source code. It's, it's all open source for the pen plotter that I use, the Axie draw. They have these weird per parabolic functions that they've kind of put into the driver that would give you perfect curves. It translates the motor power on the fly. Yes. And I'm like, okay. So with three weeks to go, you didn't want am, to reinvent that wheel. <laughs> I am not reinventing this wheel. Like, this wheel is done to death. It's yeah, fine. Yeah. So I thought, okay, they have a Python driver. All I need is to be able to communicate from the browser. Well, then that's just either WebSocket or a HTTP post request. Yeah. So I went with the post request because it's quite easy to do. In the modern um, browser land, you can send a request in Elmo in JavaScript. So I would then have to say, okay, well, but I haven't solved my first problem. How do I get the SVG out of my browsers after I've generated in Elm? Well, back again, we have the Elm port, which lets you call a JavaScript function, which can be anything. JavaScript has this amazing function called query selector. So I say, well, I'm going to grab the element of my canvas or SVG out of the browser. So in this case, the SVG. 
And then I just get all the uh, children as text, which then will give you the string that you wanted. And then I send it via HTTP post yeah, to right. a local server, which I have that calls the Python driver of the pin plotter. Yep. Using JavaScript for what it's good for, glue between, between well-written things. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and, and networking yeah. sometimes. So what's next? What would you have liked to have had more time to do for that talk? Actually, you know the seed you mentioned before? Yes. So that's actually something that I was looking into. I never thought about I can just pass the seed, which you could, into the next uh, update cycle. But I wanted to do that as well because that will give you animation. Um, animation re requires at minimum two things. You need to have a beginning state and a next state. Yep. And you can say do a transition or a draw from A to B, something like that. You have to have a beginning and the end. With the way I'm generating um, these, I guess, artworks, I'm generating the whole thing at the start. Yes. So there's a the beginning state, shall yes. we say. And then I draw everything. And then there's nothing else. So I don't have a second state to animate to. Well, to do that, you can pass the first state, which, shall we say, is the random results and the seed to the next frame. In the same way that you were using the randomness of the line above as the starting point for the next line down that's right. on the curtain, you can do that over time. Yeah. And that's so that's something. something that you can um, have a waving curtain. Oh, yeah. I would be so keen. <laughs> so I thought about, yeah, wouldn't it be nice to have an animating function? Because with the five-minute talk that I gave at What Do You Know, that was animated because everything was done in JavaScript, yeah. quick and dirty. But in the Elm version that I gave at Lambda Jam, um, I didn't have, I guess, the knowledge or the time to recreate the same experience that I wanted to have. So I have to constrain myself into saying, what are the core messages that I want to distill into this talk? Well, I want to demystify creative coding and generative art for functional programmers. So I want to give them the tools. Well, what are the tools I'm using? I'm using Sherpeting Random Numbers. I also made a quick package uh, for L-Systems that doesn't know anything beyond just the initial state in the rules to let you draw the iterative stuff. Mm. But again, the, the thing is designed so that you just need to give it an initial state. Then you call the next function, and it will just give you the next one. So you could technically plug it for the next update function, or you do it at the start. Yeah. Um, but I had to constrain myself, I think, to a static version so that I can actually get a talk out in time <laughs> and still deliver the tools to yep. people without um, having a scope that was too big. It was either animation or pen plotter. And I think you made the right choice with pen plotter. The pen plotter was so much fun. <laughs> it was very cool. Well, thank you for taking us on a tour of the exciting world of uh, generative art with Elm. I'll say that probably the best place to start if your, your curiosity is piqued is to go and watch the video of Xavier's talk, Let's Make Functional Generative Art from Yao Lambda Jam. I'll put that link right up the top of the show notes. Sounds good. And then there'll be everything else we've talked about here for you to explore. Uh, if you're anything like me, each link you click in the stuff makes you want to see the next one even more because um, the, the creativity is amazing to watch. Um, thanks again for joining us today, Xavier. Thank you, Kevin. If people want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the best place to start. I'm on Twitter like 24-7. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> I will reply, guaranteed. Awesome. I like to surround myself and, I, sh I should say, expose myself to new things all the time. So um, on Twitter, if you use Twitter, the hashtag plotter Twitter or uh, generative, so hash generative, are the two good places to start. Um, I think those hashtags are also available on Instagram. People post there too. And you can see not only just the pen plotters, but also a bunch of really amazing generative artworks that it's going to 
blow your mind every day because people are trying different functions, playing with different new techniques, um, and things that are being reinvented but also invented every day. So definitely have a look. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us in Elmtown. I'm Kevin Yank. This is Xavier Ho. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you soon. Yay.